With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Welcome to episode 304 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you for joining us this week. Sorry I missed the show last week, but I am back. And first up, I chat with Chris McShane about the just-completed winter meetings and how the Mets did at said winter meetings. Well, Chris, the winter meetings are now in the rear view. The Mets came out of it only really making one major move along with selecting a few folks in the various rounds of the uh, Rule 5 draft. But more or less, the Mets made their one move, 
which was signing Jerry Sumilia to a three-year, reportedly $25 million contract. Um, I know you were a proponent of possibly bringing Familia back, so you've got to like this, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. I think uh, John Heyman had, had updated. I think it was 330 was the final number. Oh, okay. That he, that he came in at. But, you know, what's a couple million dollars among the Wilpons? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, I, I, I do. Um, you know, this is a guy who... Uh, some some people out there have probably heard me tell the story of sort of uh, testing the patience of how long you can keep your girlfriend waiting while you're at minor league doubleheaders in the middle of Connecticut in the middle of the summer. Uh, <laughs> several years ago now, it worked out. We got married. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, back in the summer of like 2010 or 11, uh, or, or maybe even 12, somewhere in that range, when he had still pitched at Binghamton, um, going into a doubleheader and not realizing he was starting the second game and then really wanted to see him because he had some hype at the time. So that's my, uh, that's my oldest familiar thing, but you know, he came to the major leagues, um, took him a little bit to, you know, get his feet wet. And once he really had an opportunity and started pitching as a major league reliever full time, um, you know, it's it's been a very good career and he's still only 28 you know or, or did he technically turn 28 oh he's 29 barely so you know next year's is age 29 season so yeah it, it's you know this is a a pitcher who was very good and for some reason somewhat overlooked by Mets fans um i know that they you know probably harp on the postseason too much and and some of those things weren't his fault um but you know this is a very good reliever who is now coming back at the moment to be the second best reliever on the team yeah i um if (laughs) i hate that the mets have put me in a position where i have to say stuff like this but if it wasn't for his domestic violence history I would have no problem with Jay Reese Familia. I think Familia on the field is uh, a really above average pitcher who is, for whatever reason, um, unfairly maligned by Mets fans. I, I was talking to my father-in-law about this deal today, and he said, you know, that he that he he's not happy because he's sick of Familia. What was the word he used? Giving you a heart attack every time he entered a game. I that's guess not the kind of pitcher he's been, though. And, and that's what I said. You know, I just think, but it's funny. He's not the only person who said that to me over the last couple of years. I think people just remember the couple of bad games he had, and maybe the postseason, like you said, is is weighing on them. But when I think about Familia, that's not what I think about. Yeah, no, and he, he you know. Traditionally, has not been the high stress relief pitcher that people worry about. You know, I mean, his his walk rate isn't elite, but it's pretty good. Um, you know, he's not a guy who's striking out fifteen per nine and walking six. You know, <laughs> like right. that that kind of wild ride kind of pitcher. Um, and he doesn't give up a ton of base runners either. Yeah, no. Overall, it's you know a, a perfectly reasonable amount, and he's he's excelled at something that. 
very few pitchers have over the last few years, and it's limiting home runs. Um, you know, he went that calendar year without allowing one. A calendar year in which he was fully healthy, not like some quirky thing, you know? Right, yeah. But I think it was – I think he went over – the one year mark um, or, or came very close to it where he literally didn't give up a home run, uh, you know, at a time that batters are very conscious of getting the ball in the air and uh, succeeding at it. <laughs> when you look at home run rates, there have been other pitchers, of course, who have, you know, somehow managed that, you know, gotten better or at least stayed as good as they were in, you know, in the past. But it's not common to say this is a guy who's very unlikely to give up a home run. And in late in a close game, that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that – and I think that $10 million a year is, you know, whether you like it or not, is about the rate you go for for a good relief pitcher in 2018. You know, I uh, – I saw that Van Wagenen commented today that he thinks there will not be another um, eight-figure relief pitcher signed, um, you know, during the offseason. And that's frustrating, um, but I don't think that Familia's $10 million is necessarily the reason why – $10 million per year is really the reason why they're not going to sign another guy. Right, that that that's not because Familia is being overpaid. That's because the Mets are bad with their money. Um, right. Oh yeah. No, this is a perfectly reasonable signing. And yeah, when I when I read that, I was like, "Well, is it eight figures per year that you're not talking about, or eight figures at all?" Right. Because you know, you think if you sign a guy to a two-year, sixteen million dollar contract, is that okay? Right. You know, the next Anthony Sporzak. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh God! Don't put it that way. I know, and then like, full disclosure, at the time I was like, I like this. He's good. Yeah, you know, I can justify it. Uh, he had injury concerns and not exactly the longest track record of success, but you know, it, it felt like one thing that had kind of been a, a theme in baseball was, and maybe we're seeing it through a Mets fan lens here, as as we probably always do, but. <laughs> You know, oh, this guy got good. Is he really that good? You know, right. And we have a syndrome, the uh, the the Turner Murphy syndrome, <laughs> of like, oh yeah, he is that good. Pay him a lot of money, believe it. Uh, to go back to Johan Santana's favorite phrase. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, no, but I, yeah, I, I think that's that's you know, I think going back to Swarzak, Swarzak was a guy who had a perfectly cromulent. Uh, major league career and then seemed to put things together the year before he came to the Mets and with relief pitchers that's just such a dangerous game you know even just like Joe Kelly who I actually you know went to bat for in my AOP uh, Joe Kelly got 25 million dollars yesterday from the Dodgers and Joe Kelly was was a decent relief pitcher but was elite in the postseason and you know, people just tend to pay for relief pitchers based on the most recent data available and sometimes don't look back at sort of a longer sample. And Familia, while he was very good when he was traded to Oakland, was not a different pitcher in Oakland than he was for the Mets the last few seasons. So I think that signing someone like Familia for the amount of money they signed him for 
makes absolute sense because you're there's more of a track record to base it on. I don't really believe the only certain players can play in New York line yeah. of thinking, but if you buy into that, you know he can play in New York. You know, he has a familiarity with the team, with the ballpark, etc. All those things account for a little bit. I I, th- I think it's a pretty good I think it's a pretty good signing. I don't love the optics of bringing back a domestic abuser. But that's, I think, more on Major League Baseball and their reluctance to take a real stand on domestic abuse versus instead of the Mets necessarily self-policing in that way. Sure, yeah. No, it's... Um, I saw a good point. I think it was... Uh, I should probably check before <laughs> citing somebody uh, on it. But I think it was JT Tehran on Twitter. Um, I think he's relatively uh you know known in the Mets Twitter community mm-hmm. if we can call it that <laughs> uh you know but he, he had he had made I think as I scroll down to make sure I'm not saying something that somebody didn't say yeah okay so he had tweeted uh you know I can't compare Jerry's Familia's arrest with Jose Reyes's and went on to you know just sort of contrast the circumstances of the two and the things that were you know, publicly known, uh, it wasn't an essay or anything. It's just a tweet, but it, it, it was an interesting point, uh, you know, to, to maybe add some levels to, you know, sure. what somebody's done and how, how you feel about it. I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not something anybody's proud of certainly, right. but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's easier to to stomach, I guess, than like the you know some of the other alternatives, uh, uh, you know, that we've experienced as Mets fans. I think part of it with Reyes too, to make sense of my line of thought here, <laughs> is that he only wound up back with the Mets because he did that. Yes. So you know, there's there's issues of how do we treat somebody who's done this? And, you know, you, you, as these things have happened in sports, uh, which have been the most prominent place for them in, in like public discourse, um, you know, how do we handle this? You see ex- some experts saying, taking away the livelihood of the, you know, the, the, uh, the person who's done it is, is a bad idea. Uh, has a tendency to make it only worse. So, you know, you, you see that view from experts on, on the subject and you try to reconcile that concept with like, oh, but this guy's playing for my team, you know? Right. Uh, do do I want my team to be the one that's still employing him? Uh, so, you know, you have all that, but in this case, Familia, you know, went... Uh, you know, he went into that season 2017, right? Feels a little longer ago. Uh, yeah, but does. he went in. He went into it with his brief suspension, uh, and then he, you know, had the blood clot thing uh, happen shortly after he returned from his suspension. Um, you know, continued to pitch as his normal self after he returned from the injury. Gets traded away. You know, and and then there's a a choice to go out on the market and bring him in, 
uh, at a time that he might be a little undervalued. It, it it's, you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody the uh, discomfort of it all. If you know, if they feel that way, but it just doesn't feel quite as dirty as the Reyes return did. I can agree with that. Even if even if I do have a a fair amount of discomfort around it, it does feel different than the Reyes one, and I'm not entirely sure why. But you know that's okay. Right. I, um, I'm not going to be buying his jersey or anything. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, it's. I don't think I hope to not be guilty of it. You know, obviously, Familia is still a very useful major league player, and Reyes was not. Uh, you know, this season with the Mets, so. You know, you, you you try to separate those things, but it might be slightly easier to you know to to live with it and accept it with a guy who you know is going to help the team, and that sucks. Like that that shouldn't be the way that you feel as a fan, but I think that definitely leaks into it. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that too. Uh, so aside from signing Familia, we um, we didn't really see the Mets do too much in the winter meetings, although there was a ton of, of hype and rumor going around, um, specifically about the Mets and their pursuit of JT Real Muto from the Marlins. Now, we talked a little bit about this last time, just sort of, you know, the type of player we'd like to see the Mets go after. And I think, you know, as you, me, and Steve were talking after the Cano trade about sort of things that maybe we want to see the Mets do now, right? And I think that all of us said catcher was a place that we'd want them to upgrade. I think it's it's pretty much without question that Real Muto is the best catcher available. Um, of all of the uh, catchers that are either free agents or have been spoken about as potential trade targets, I think Real Muto is the best combination of offensive and defensive player. He has two years left under control from the Marlins, and he doesn't want to play for the Marlins. So he's potentially a guy you could trade for and then sign to an extension if you wanted to because he he clearly is looking to play someplace else. And and if, if he's impressed with, with whatever team trades for him, I'm sure they can make that work out. So you, when you look at this deal you're sort of getting the best of all three worlds. You're getting a player who's under who's under cost control but can possibly be yours for longer. You're looking at a player who's one of the best offensive players at his position and while he's not maybe one of the best defensive players at his position, he certainly isn't a liability behind the plate the way any number of Mets catchers have been over the last few years. So, I don't think anybody would be opposed to the Mets trying to trade for Real Muto. But there was a lot of talk about what the Mets were going to have to give up for Real Muto. And some of the names that were bandied about were Noah Syndergaard, yeah. Nimmo, Ahmed Rosario, and Michael Conforto. Now, I think I know the answer for me, but I want to know what you have to say, Chris. Would you trade any of those four affirmation players for Real Muto? Uh, I think... In a world where they'd actually do something about it, <laughs> I, I think I might be able to trade Rosario for him. And it's not because I don't like Rosario. I, I you know, I was encouraged by what he did late this season. Um, you know, I can, 
I can see him building upon that. He's still very young. Uh, you, you consider team control. He's still got a lot of that left. You know, there, there's no part of me that's like, oh, time to give up on that guy, you know? Uh, he did tweet a photo, a, a throwback Thursday photo of him and Robinson Cano when Cano was slightly younger and Rosario was, you know, looked like he was in high school. <laughs> uh, so after that photo, I'm like, well, no, you can't trade him now. I mean, <laughs> the guy, I mean, he, he, it was the photo with like dreams can come true or something like that, you know, like something that you're just like, ah, um, but yeah, it, not that you can, you know, you, you saw people kind of discussing, well, if they trade Rosario, they can sign some stopgap, and then Andres Jimenez is going to come up, and uh, you know he's he's a highly tatted prospect, and he plays shortstop and all that. That's fine, I guess, but it, you, to me, you don't do that unless you're in a spot that you say we're going to trade Rosario, we'll get Real Muto. Um, only players whose names end in O should really be in this deal, by the way. <laughs> so Nimmo uh, and Conforto could be in the deal too, but not Syndergaard. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Syndergaard is just, he, he's, you know, he doesn't belong in the group of the O names. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, if you were going to do that and then go out and sign Manny Machado, sure, you know, Machado is everything Rosario could ever hope to be. Um, and he's, you know, only a little bit older. Right. And has a long track record of it and all that. You know, if I, if it felt like the Mets would do that, then that could be a way to solve your problem. Um, I obviously just don't think they, uh, that I have faith that they will do that. Right. Um, it, it feels weird, though, to think that shortstops are easier to come by than catchers. Um, that's not the way it felt for much of my fandom, but it does feel that way now. Quite possibly, uh-huh. yeah. You know. Um, I, I don't know if I would do this trade for any of those players involved. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was curious to hear your take. I, I, Syndergaard, no way. Yeah. There's, the, <laughs> there's no ways for Syndergaard. And I guess you can make an argument for the other three. Like, I think your, I think your argument is sound, right? If you believe in Jimenez and, you know, I have no reason not to believe that Jimenez could be a, a productive major league player, a contributor. Um, you know, if you or you know, uh, if you're still big on Guillaume, I guess there's that, right? I guess there are people out there who are still big on Guillaume, maybe, sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you it just straight up defense first, right? So, anyway. Sure, you can make that argument. I, I not to uh, not to contradict our pal Ted Berg from last week, but I think that Nimmo is probably the the most replicable player we mentioned. You know, aside from his smile, I think everything Nimmo does can be done by another major league ball player. I don't think he's so unique in his abilities that you couldn't find a Brandon Nimmo on the on the market. I, I think that especially on a short-term deal, there are probably a number of outfielders who you could get for, you know, it would, it would, they would cost more than Nimmo because Nimmo is still so cheap under team control, where they could put up similar outfield numbers for a year or two for what Nimmo could put up for this year. There's that argument. Right. 
I also heard the argument, which I think is a little bit silly, but again, there's some logic to it, that you trade Conforto because Conforto is a Boris client and he's never going to be with the Mets long term. Yeah. I I think we're still too far away from free agency to have that conversation about Conforto. Right. But but again, there 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 is some semblance of logic there. Um Yeah. Yeah, no, and, and you know, in terms of uh Nimo, right? It, for whatever reason his skill set sort of reminds me a little bit of of this guy. Uh, you know, the Rangers and Mets supposedly talked about trade potential stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to use a scientific term, uh, at the winter meetings. So he's older. Uh, don't, don't crucify me for this, but if you're looking at the type of player you hope Nimmo could be, Shinsu Chu sort of is that. Right. Uh, you know, high on base percentage, some power and, uh, you know, might steal you a few bases, but isn't going to lead the league in it. Like that won't embarrass himself in the outfield. Right. Yeah, all, all that kind of stuff, um, you know. And it, the, to me, that's that's a pretty good compliment. You know, if, if Brendan Nimmo goes on to have several five, six win seasons by war, uh, you know, that that's that's a pretty damn good career. Absolutely. Um, so you know, somebody like that, if you if, but again, you know, he's this is somebody who's making money, so you have to always factor that in. Um, well, yeah, I'm not saying it's the perfect solution, but if you if you were telling me you could trade Nemo for Real Muto and then Chu would be available, basically if you just took on sort of like you know, 75, 80% of his salary, um, then you know, okay, I can I can work with that plan. I can see concerns and flaws and all that, but you know, if if there was something, but it can't it can't just be trade Nemo and sign Pollock because you know that doesn't it doesn't address everything that you need no it doesn't um so you know and real muto is a nice player don't get me wrong real muto is going to hit better than anyone who catches for the mets this year that's not real muto right <laughs> that's just that's probably the way it's going to go right um, unless they sign grandal or ramos it sounds like ramos is like the last on their list yeah but yeah, those those two can hit uh, as well as or better than Real Buto. Yeah, um, but they cost money. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and I also think you know not to not to be the the total Pollyanna that I can be sometimes, but I think that you know over a series of small sample sizes, you could argue that Travis Darno and JT Real Muto are not that different of players. Of course, the health of Darno is always in question, and so you really have almost nothing to base it on long term. Yeah, but, you know, but you, you understand what I'm saying, though. Like, yeah, no, it's a, it's a certainly an interesting comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, it, well, it's funny with Real Muto. I feel like it's been uh, I, I've seen a such a wide range of opinions on him. <laughs> You know, uh, that that are new to me. That which that's the fascinating part. You know, thing that you know, either he's the best catcher of his generation, or he's not actually good at all. You know, it's trade rumors bring that sort of thing out. But uh, but yeah, in terms of the Darno comp, I'm stalling as I 
Is he looking up? <laughs> well, yeah, no, no. The, the little, you know, the custom leaderboards on Fangraphs are a nice little tool to have. Yeah. It's going back to the start of 2015. Uh, yeah. I mean, health is certainly the biggest difference between the two of them. Uh, and, and that health has led Real Muto to, you know, be a much more valuable player. Uh, but he's not been a drastically better hitter than Darno. He's just been a little bit better, you know, yeah. a little higher average, a little higher on base, uh, pretty similar power numbers when you, you know, account for the average. Right. Um, you know, Darno's hit 33 home runs in less than half the time that Real Muto's hit 59. And, you know, there's, they play in different home parks and they play differently and all that. One, <laughs> Real Muto has stolen 31 bases, though, and Darno has never done that. <laughs> Darno has not thrown out 31 base dealers. Uh, yeah, yeah that, that's also a thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, it, like if, you, if you're just objective and you look at what these guys have done over the last four seasons, they're not that different. It's just the, you know, Real Muto is going to not have you having... Um, Oh man, Lobatone, that guy. Yep. Yeah, like Lobatone and Nito. One of those types of catchers isn't going to have to come up because Rayo Mojo's hurt. Right. So that that that's that's the biggest difference to me, really. Which you already said. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, I I think it's a it's a worthwhile conversation to have about just how much better than what the Mets have or at least what the Mets can have cheaply, you know, and Real Muto, because I I think that for whatever reason, and, and you know we're all guilty of this to some degree. I think that in the way that baseball fans overvalue their prospects, sometimes we undervalue our everyday players. Yeah, it's a weird thing, but right? I, I hear you. Because we we see them strike out with men on base with more frequency than we would if they played for another team. We see, we see more of the good and more of the bad, but when you're talking about another team, you don't see all the bad as frequently. You don't see, like, you know, when I put on MLB Network and watch Quick Pitch, you know, lying in bed, they're not showing me Real Muto striking out three times in a game. But if I watch the Mets that night, I might see Darno or Pilecki, you know, muff a ball in the dirt or or, you know, strike out a couple times or ground into a double play. You just don't see those things in the highlight reels. So you tend to think that other teams' players don't do it. Um, right. Even if objectively you know it's not the case, it's just that your your like gut perception of a player is different. And so, um, you know, we were talking about the, the Met fans' reaction to trading uh, Jared Kelenic last time I was on the show. And he talked about it with, with Ted a bit, too. And how we we were all 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 of a sudden we were all Kellenick's uncle, you know, who was like right. who watched him play little league, and we all were also had about it. But on the same token, we think that Travis Darno is is garbage and shouldn't be on the team. I don't think either of those things are as true as they feel to us, you know. To use a, a Colbertism, the truthiness of them <laughs> right. is is very different than what the reality is probably for both those players. Yeah, and the point about you know guys that you don't see. Uh, you know, sort of the same phenomenon. You know, people 
um, you know, perhaps have a fear of flying because of, you know, you only and it's inverted. But in that case, you only hear about the bad. Right. Yeah. But the vast majority of the time, it's it's totally fine and good. Um, so with the baseball player, whether he's on another team or he's in the minor league system, it's just the inverse of that. You're not hearing about his 0 for 5 night with like, you know, five strikeouts uh, when he's in double A. I mean, if you read the farm reports on Amazing Avenue every day, <laughs> which then, of course you should be doing, <laughs> yeah, and plenty and plenty of people do. Like, yeah. there's an audience for that, but you know, for the most part, uh, even if you do that and you look at that every day through the entire throughout the entire season, hey, he just had a bad night. It's, it's the minor leagues. Nobody's nobody. There's no consequence, you know. Right. Uh, you do and it. There's at the also, ma- uh, sorry to interrupt you, Chris. There, no, go there, ahead. <laughs> there's also the perception that I think is true, but I think it's really easy to say again when you're a fan of a team's farm system that in the minors you're not worrying about results, you're worrying about process, and so you know you can you can convince yourself that a bad performance in the minors for a pitcher was because he was working on his curveball. And it didn't yeah. matter how many guys hit it. It was about getting the reps in and throwing the curveball. Similarly, guys at the plate, you know, well, you know, his job tonight at the plate was just to to use his eye as well as he can. So he wasn't swinging at everything. He was trying to get to a two strike count to improve his two strike hitting. There are so many things you can convince yourself a player is doing in the minors because of the instructional aspect of it. And so when you see that over five, it doesn't mean the same thing as you know. The minute Cespedes goes over five, you, you, <laughs> yeah. you hear somebody saying, you know, this fucking bum, we're paying him all this money. He's right. He goes over five. You know, it's just a totally different perception. Yeah. Yeah. And yes, exactly. You know, you, you do it at the major league level and you're just, you know, then it matters. Then it the, this time it counts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, so it's, and it's very easy. So I think it's partly that. And then partly just sort of the grass is greener kind of thing. It's very easy to romanticize, you know, the, the, the unknown, uh, commodity in this case, uh, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a weird thing. I, I, I do wonder, you know, there are a lot of things that you encounter as a fan that you, you, take a step back and you say to yourself, well, it's not just Mets fans or it's not just uh, New York Rangers or New York Giants fans, you know, everybody does this with their own, but I I don't know. Like I, it's a continuing fascination that like the best players who make it look the easiest have the hardest time winning over people in New York. Yeah. You know, Beltron as a Met Cano as a Yankee, uh, are two examples, but they're they're far from alone. You know, right. you you uh, like the expectation level just seems to get so high that any failure is unacceptable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know, as with any trade, it always depends on the deal. If you're for it or against, it. again, another Ted Bergism. Um, <laughs> you know, but. But I think that that both of us think that there needs to probably be an upgraded catcher somewhere along the way. So if it's not going to be Real Muto, do you have a particular catcher that you'd be pulling for? 
Well, Grandal's my guy. Um, sell me on Grandal. I'm not saying he's not my guy. I just I, I want you to sell him for me. Sure. Uh, I've found he's undervalued in fantasy baseball, and he's usually on my roster, and he helps me. <laughs> That's <laughs> my <very> actual, scientific. <laughs> I know it's extremely important, and it's the way you should build your major league team in real life. But sometimes uh, I'm only like. I don't know, 25% joking, but, (laughs) but, um, but sometimes looking at things when they're just numbers and not, you know, players who are on your team, you, you can, you know, detach emotion from it and just really be objective and look at, okay, you know, this guy is really good at this, this, and this. And, you know, he, he, this is somebody who I'd want to see play on, on my real life team. Um, you know, health-wise, he's had a good track record, and, and Real Muto has too. You know, catchers don't play 150 games a year, but if you're getting over 120, 130 out of them on average, you know, that's you're, you're doing just fine. Um, when was the last time a Met catcher caught 130 games? Oh, there's some trivia. I'm not good at trivia. <laughs> Neither am I. I was, I was trying to think. Was it Lazuka? Yeah. That would be my guess. Baseball Reference can't answer this. Let, let's see if I can look up something on Baseball Reference and make sense about Grandal at the same time. <laughs> so, with so with Grandal, it's a combo of the one thing you know. In fantasy, obviously, defense doesn't matter at all. Um, when you're looking at it, you're saying, "Hey, this guy can hit," and people don't seem to notice that. So it's that. And then it's also, um, you know, the real life component where defense does matter. You look at the stuff that baseball prospectus has done and it raised them highly. Lucas wrote a piece on our site that was favorable, uh, to say the least, about Grandall's overall game, including his defense. Uh, you know, so you, you add all that up, and I feel like that's a, you know, it's, it's a very good player. He's available only for money and sacrificing one second round pick uh, because he turned down a qualifying offer, you know, but that that's a guy who I'd like to see on my team. I don't disagree with any of that. I don't, I don't really have a, uh, a dog in this fight. You know, I, um, I'm somewhat averse to trading or, or trading a major player or prospect or signing a catcher for a lot of money because catchers are just so volatile and they just get hurt and they break your heart, man. You know, like Mets fans don't realize we've had a couple of really great catchers over the course of of time, but most teams catchers just aren't very good and (laughs) aren't very good and get hurt a lot. You know, and, and we've seen that as of late. You know, the years of Mike Piazza are far behind us, but that doesn't mean that we don't maybe, uh, you know, maybe we think maybe we think an all-star catcher is is less rare than it is because we had one for so long. You know. I yeah, know. and I have an answer to the trivia question. Is it Luduka? No, he was damn close. Uh, one twenty four. He topped out at. As oh a man! It's yeah. the same concept, you know. There's a guy who was not hurt and was your starting catcher, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, but the last one to actually do that 
of course, uh, with Leduca not being the answer, Mike Piazza. Wow. Who did it four times as a Met. See, that's what I'm talking about. People forget. Todd Hundley three times, Gary Carter four, John Stearns two. And I'll admit that I might not be pronouncing this correctly because my Mets history isn't 100% great. Uh, Jesse Gonder? No idea. Played in 1964 for the Mets, 131 games. So here's to that guy. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, how would you feel about Maldonado? Uh, eh, that pretty much sums it up. Yep, same here. Good, good. You know, I um, you know, objectively, he can't hit. You know, he's he's not. That's saying uh, it nicely. <laughs> yeah, well, he's not 2018 Jose, Jose Reyes. <laughs> no one is 2018 Jose Reyes. But he's he's proven himself to be a bad hitter, uh, and that that's it's a tough thing to overcome. Your defense has to be really, really, really good at any position. You know, I know people like to emphasize up the middle defense, but you got to be awesome if your bat is going to just be like a pitcher is in the lineup. Yeah. Um, so is the ultimate fallback plan? I don't know. I, I, you know, and through all this, I feel bad for Darno, you know, the process he got tendered, but they don't, I, I think the way it works, if my memory is correct, is that to get off the hook for paying him anything significant, they have to hold on to him until spring training and then cut him. I believe you're right. So, you know, it, it just kind of sucks. Like, nobody wants to have Tommy John surgery, um, especially if it affects their livelihood. So, you know, he's he's coming off that, and he's in a spot where if they acquire literally any other catcher uh, and don't send Plawecki away in, a, you know, some sort of deal, which hasn't even come up as a possibility. <laughs> Darno is basically spending the winter waiting for them to sign somebody else who's going to beat him in spring training for the job and then be told he has to go find a job when everybody's already underway in spring training. Yeah. It's messed up. Like, that's just not how the timing of it should be. Right. You know, if you're going to give the teams the out, do it a little sooner and give the guy a chance to go get a shot at a, you know, a gig. Yeah. It almost seems like the compassionate thing to do would have been just to not tender him a contract. Right. And, you know, I absolutely. But as the team, you you know, you're theoretically trying to win baseball games and <laughs> not be compassionate. It, it, I don't know. I, I miss uh, – it's nice to have all the information we do and it's nice to have so much of it just – pouring out onto the internet in real time. But I kind of missed the days when uh, there was no Twitter and every team tried to win. You know, <laughs> or at least we thought. Maybe maybe there was more tanking going on than we thought. But, you know. There was the appearance of winning. Yeah, everybody kept up the appearances pretty nicely. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, any other catchers you would want to talk about? Um... Well, I like Wilson Ramos too. Uh, you know, I feel like of the free agents, we, we we've heard his name occasionally. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been no shortage of Real Muto trade rumors. Uh, Grandal has come up. Uh, 
Maldonado's come up the most. Uh, and then, you know, they, I think they met with Ramos at the winter meetings. They did, yes. Uh, you know, and we keep hearing, oh, they want to emphasize defense, blah, 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 you know, all that. But uh, this is a guy who I guess he was a bit of a late bloomer. You know, but over the last three seasons, he's been uh, just as good at hitting as Real Mucho and and uh, Grandal. You know, and I can't claim to be an expert on his defense, but you know, nobody said he's like he shouldn't be playing the position. <laughs> you know, right? Um. So yeah, I. I'd, I'd support signing him too. I, I think I'd rank it in terms of, uh, you know, overall preference given the reality of the Mets roster and ownership. Um, Grandal one. I think I'd take Ramos as a free agent two over Real Muto as a trade piece at three. Uh, and then Maldonado, you know, fourth. That's not a crazy ranking. There's there's logic to that. Yeah, I, I'd like to think so. Yeah. <laughs> but my uh, favorite Wilson Ramos story was uh, sitting behind a twin scout at City Field with a twins fan uh, and a scout who wouldn't admit who he worked for. Uh, but it was shortly after Ramos was traded from Matt Caps away from the twins to the Nationals and the scout was completely in favor of the move and no, the twins did the right thing and blah, 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 blah. And Matt Caps was terrible. And, uh, you know, Ramos, it took a little while for him to turn into this like really good hitter, but he was a viable, like better than league average hitter for the nationals in short order. So it was just a nice example of a scout being wrong. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I guess my concern with Ramos is just the age and the wear and tear. Sure, yeah. I mean, uh, he's been around for, for a minute. Yeah. Um, Grandal's the same age. Right. Which is why Real Muto seems so much more appealing. Uh, I think in, in a vacuum because right. of that age. Um. So, you know, the, the Mets are in pursuit of a catcher. They signed a relief pitcher. There's talk of them still wanting to upgrade the outfield in some way. And some of the names we've heard uh, mentioned are Adam Jones, who the Mets met with when they were in Vegas. Uh, A.J. Pollock has been a relatively popular name. Um, do either of those do anything for you? So... Uh, similar to Grandal, Pollock has sort of been on my radar via the uh, fantasy baseball experience. <laughs> and, you know, you look back, so he, he's got something in common with Darno and Ligaris in that he just hasn't been able to stay on the field for full seasons. Right. When he did, damn, it was good. You know, hit 315. 367 on base, 20 home runs, 39 stolen bases, uh, all in 2015. And yeah, you know, he's played for the Diamondbacks and they have a hitter friendly home ballpark. But, you know, that that is a player who can play center field well, 
Um, and, and the closest thing, you know, I can get to like Carlos Beltran in his prime. The, the the concept Beltron a little more powerful slightly less on steals but you know that kind of guy um, but he doesn't stay on the field and you know it, it's it's been a few broken bones but when you start to add up the like the reason why he's not playing is because of that kind of seems like he's a little more prone to having his bones break you know right um just doing things that that baseball players do, and you can say the same thing about Lagares. You know, uh, that, uh, let me just revise. I don't mean to slight one of my favorite Mets of all time. Beltron did early in his career have 38 home runs and 42 stolen bases. So, I'll, I'll revise slightly. AJ Pollock at his best might be Carlos Beltron light. There we go. That sounds more reasonable to me. But it's the you know the type of center fielder, sure. the guy who could play the position and, and do it all. Um, so you know, if you could tell me that uh, City Field is going to have some, you know, shock absorbing underlying layer of the grass, and he's going to be healthy, I'd love it. I could live with signing him and and just knowing that he's not going to play 160 games, but maybe he'll play 120. I could live with that, you know, if it, if the alternative is not doing anything in the outfield. Right. But, uh, but yeah, he's he's a good player who has a like man, it's enticing. It's just tough. That that's an excellent way to put it. You know, I I think that part of the problem here is that you have two years of Yuena Cespedes under contract. And we all know that in, a, in best case scenario, that really means you have a year and a half of, Car- of uh, UNS Cespedes. I almost said Carlos Beltran. Yeah, Beltran on the brain for me now. Um, but, you know, if Cespedes comes back when he's supposed to, which is, you know, approximately the all-star break, you have a year and a half of Cespedes who, over the course of his time with the Mets, has been good, but, again, has not been super healthy. Um but you have, you have to worry about finding him playing time. They're not going to sit Yuenes Cespedes. They're also not, you know, they're not going to sit Nimmo or Conforto for any extended period of time. So any player that you that you go after, you realize is going to be a a a, a playing crunch when when hopefully Cespedes comes back. I'm not saying that should be a reason you shouldn't do anything. What I'm saying is that the player that you should be getting should be somebody who isn't going to give you the same problem that you're going to have with an with a with an unhealthy Cespedes, right? If you're going to sign somebody, I want it to be somebody who's going to play so that you're going to be put yourself you're going to have a bad not a bad position. You're going to have yourself in a very good position for the Mets. You're going to have four or five outfielders for three or for you know, for three spots and you're going to have to find those guys at bats. I don't want to sign somebody else to a contract and then have him injured so much that you're not you don't have him, you don't have Cespedes, and you potentially don't have Lagares either. And, you know, Conforto has shown a couple of, has been injured a few times in his career. So I, I just feel like if you're gonna sign someone from the app for the outfield, it cannot be another injury prone outfielder. It has to be yeah. somebody you're reasonably sure is gonna play hundred and forty games if you ask him to. Yeah. Yeah. 
So that, that makes Pollock a, a tough sell for me. And then Andrew Jones is a tough sell for me because I don't believe he can play San Andrew. Andrew. And, uh, not Andrew Jones. I'm haunted haunted memories. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How fucking old am I? Uh, Adam Jones. Um, I, I, to be fair, I think that Andrew Jones could probably play a better center field today than Adam Jones could. And that was my point, is that I don't, think, I don't think Adam Jones can play center field anymore. And so, uh, you know, I think if you're going to sign, if you're going to bring in an outfielder, you have to bring in a center fielder. Right? I mean, is there any point to bring in another corner outfielder? No, not not somebody who could only play there. I mean, of course, any center fielder could be moved over to, you know, a corner. But, yeah, the in terms of signing their quote-unquote fourth outfielder or making Lagaris the fourth outfielder, it's got to be somebody who plays center. Right. Um, and, yeah, Jones, you know, he, he had some very nice seasons, and he's been healthy. You know, he's a right-handed bat. He's 33. You know, not in baseball years, not that old. Uh, you know, not that young either, but... He's been a nice player for the Orioles, um, and man, just looking back, it's it's. <laughs> I, I kind of had forgotten that he was traded from the Mariners to the Orioles, but I remember that being a big thing because he I was a totally young. I forgot that happened until today. Yeah, but yeah, so you know, at his best, he was Beltron light light. Um, <laughs> You know, but a guy who certainly wasn't like Beltran in terms of getting on base, but, you know, play center field, hit some home runs, steal some bases, have a nice slash line, you know, all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, unless we're talking about like a one-year, you know, $8 million deal or something along those lines where it's just, okay, you know, we're going to take a flyer and he's, we're going to go into this with him being a part-time player and all that. Um, I just don't see it. You know, if, if they sign him and it's for more than that, then I hope I'm wrong. But, you know, this is a guy who looks like it's been, you know, it will have been four years ago that he had his last, like, solidly above-average season. Yeah, I wouldn't unless you unless you're signing him to be a part-time player and he understands that role. I I wouldn't. I would be particularly a fan of of Adam Jones on the Mets in 2019. Um any other outfielders that kind of catch your eye? Um let's see. I was looking at it a little bit and the short answer was no, but <laughs> let's see what what else is out there. Um I mean, I feel like there's a lot of part-time guys, you know? Yeah. Which, obviously, the Mets need one or maybe two of. But, yeah, just looking around the outfield. Um... It would be nice if it was a like, – ideally, you want a right-hander who can play some center. Right. And that's not easy to come by, necessarily. Right. Yeah, no, it, it's just uh... – yeah, oh. I know who, well, <laughs> we can just say Bryce Harper and laugh about oh, it. Oh, sure, yes. 
That guy. Um, and then... But again, doesn't really fit the criteria we just laid out. Right. No, no, no. No, for sure. And then, you know, even somebody who's interesting to me, uh, sort of a, a favorite of mine as a fan and all that, but he wouldn't play center field either in Granderson, you know. But right. if you're going to sign him and push Nimmo to center and have Ligaris really just play a couple times a week, I could get on board with that. But, you know, there, it, it's pretty much Pollock is a clear number one despite the health issues and then Jones in terms of what you're looking at on the market and our criteria. Right. Yeah. It's, um, it's going to be interesting to see what the Mets do in the outfield. Um, I wonder if there's a desire to sign a, uh, so, you know, obviously, I feel like for a long time, specialization was the name of the game in baseball. And right. now we're starting to see more teams go after players that are more versatile than that. But the positions the Mets would need versatility at don't really pair with center field. Like, for instance, I could understand if you wanted to sign somebody in case Alonzo is a bust for first base. Right. How many first baseman center fielders are there out there, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, or, or catcher center fielders, right? It just, they just don't exist. So I don't think that there's that player. You know, for years I was saying the Mets needed to sign a Logan Morrison type, a guy who could play first or play the outfield for you. That's not really the case anymore. I think that the Mets, like I just said, need to get a center fielder and hopefully a right-handed one if they're trying to add somebody. I can almost understand if you upgrade a catcher and you've already upgraded a second base and you think you're going to have full healthy seasons of Conforto and Nimmo, I can almost understand having Ligaris be your everyday center fielder until Cespedes comes back. And then you push Nimmo back to center. I can be convinced of that. But I am also higher on Ligaris than I think most people are. So I recognize that that's probably a worse idea than I want to say. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, and I guess we'll just sort of end this conversation with just the general impression of Van Wagenen at his first winter meetings. Um, I was doing a couple things around the house last night. I put an MLB network in the background, and Van Wagenen was on MLB Tonight. And I was impressed with his sense of humor about himself. Mm. Uh, like um, somebody asked him, you know, you've been rumored to be going, going after a catcher and a lot of, you know, your superstar names have been floated about as possible trade partners. And he said, oh, yeah, we're trading the whole roster. We're going to have a one-man lineup that can be just a catcher. <laughs> you know, like he, nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was self-aware to recognize that a lot of the names – being mentioned are way outside of the range of what should be traded. And he just seemed to have a bit of a, of a self-awareness where I'm not used to seeing in a baseball executive, or at least he didn't come like Alderson might've made the same remark, but when Alderson made it, there was a sort of edge to it. Mm, yeah. And, and I don't think that Van Wagner had any edge to him when he said this. Um, he also said that, you know, he finds the easiest part of the job so far is dealing with agents. And he said that, you know, that might not, might not be what you think because 
you know, he was competing against these agents for clients for a long time, but he said he understands how an agent thinks and how an agent thinks about his player. So he doesn't need to learn that part of it. That part's coming pretty easily to him. Mm. And overall, I think he carried himself in this interview very well. It's the first time I've seen, I did not watch the um, Francesa interview with him and Fred Wolpon, and Jeff Wolpon rather, and uh, Mickey You're Calibre. better off. <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure I am. Um, but so I, uh, yeah, I can't really comment on that, but this is the first time I'd seen him interviewed for more than two minutes, not by SNY. And, and he came off, you know, pretty well. And I think that when you look at what he did in Vegas, aside from signing Familia, he, and maybe this was all smoke and mirrors. He made it seem like the Mets were in on everybody. He made it seem like the Mets were going to be players and that, that the Mets were for real. And I love Sandy Alderson. I was defending Sandy Alderson long after many smarter people than I had sort of decided maybe he wasn't a good fit for the Mets. But I think that Alderson at the winter meetings always projected this like icy conservatism of not rushing into anything and taking your time and doing your due diligence. And while, again, I agree with all of those theories in principle, all of those ideas in theory, the reality is that the Mets did not do enough in the off season the last few years. I think now we can look back and say that without question, the Mets just didn't do enough in the off season. You know, the Mets took somebody in the rule five draft today that they're not going to trade they didn't trade five minutes later. You know, when was the last time that... Who was the lefty the Mets took in the Rule 5 draft? Alderson's first or second year? Amos? No. Or Brad Amos? Or... No, 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 no. Um, pitcher? Pitcher, yeah. Lefty... Gil Martin? Gil Martin, there we go. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, like, that was the last time the Mets took a, a player in the Rule 5 draft that, that they at least attempted to keep on the roster for the year. You know, that's that's a way to get a player really cheaply. And, the, you know, the Mets did it this weekend, this week rather. And I just feel like this Mets team, even though they didn't, they probably did as much as they did last year under Alderson, it just appeared that the Mets were more legit this year. And ultimately that doesn't matter. Ultimately results during the games matter. And if you ask me in August what kind of winter meetings the Mets had, I'll probably not remember. But it, sitting where I'm sitting right now, it's nice to see Van Wagenen trying to put the Mets back in the forefront of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, and I think that sums it up very well. Um, you know, it, it's... If, we're, if we wanted refreshing and energetic and all that sort of thing, we're certainly getting that. Uh, you know, buzz about the team right now doesn't make them good, but it's there, you know, certainly from a selfish perspective of, you know, running, running the site. <laughs> yeah. It sure is nice to have them, you know, involved and in, with rumors rather than just sort of like speculating on our own. Oh, who could help the Mets? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so first impressions are good, uh, overall, you know, you, you can't react to trades that are rumored and not made. Um, don't tell that to the internet, but <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, the two moves he's made, 
uh, in terms of acquisitions are ones that I like. So, you know, in that sense, I, how can I say anything other than he's made a good first impression? Yeah. All right. I want to ask you a couple of sort of rapid fire questions here to end the, uh, the segment. Do you, you, all you can take is more likely or less likely for these. Okay. Okay. Real Muto's a Met come opening day. Is that more likely or less likely to happen? Uh, less. Okay. Um, the Mets add a high caliber starting pitcher. I don't mean a number one, but I mean somebody who won't just replace Vargas. Mm, oh, way less. Yeah. <laughs> the Mets sign two more legitimate relief pitchers. Two more? Less. One more? Mm, can I take a, a push? You can take a push, <laughs> sure. Um, the Mets sign an outfielder that is neither a center field that that is either not a center fielder or left-handed. No, I'm sure more. <laughs> okay. Um, trying to think what other moves the Mets might make. Uh, I guess those are the big ones. Like if I were, if if I were Van Wagenen. My priorities would sit with I need a catcher first. I need another bullpen arm second. I think I would try and replace Jason Vargas in the rotation somehow. Oh, that would be nice. And uh, and then I'm worrying about the outfield. But I recognize that, I again, I'm higher on Ligaris than most people are. Do you think we're going to see anything happen this weekend? Uh, this weekend, I'm going to guess no. But I, I won't be surprised if they've done most of their significant work sooner than we're accustomed to. You know, I think by the middle of January, we might have a pretty good sense of what the uh, likely opening day roster is. Yeah. Um, again, I feel like this is the one week of the year I watch a lot of MLB Network. Because it's just, I like the winter meetings, and what else are you watching on a Tuesday in, in December, right? Um, but I saw them float this really initially very dumb idea that I have since, I don't want to say, <laughs> say come around on, but okay. it's interesting. They said that there should be, uh, that if you don't sign a player by January 15th, you have to sign them to a one-year deal, no more, no less. Huh. So sort of like a free agency deadline. Exactly. Yeah. Um, where you know you'd be incentivized to sign a player earlier rather than later. Um, or they said that you know similarly, if uh, if you sign a player after January fifteenth, they get an automatic player option for the next year. Yeah that the that form of it, I think I like a little bit better. You yeah. know. Yeah. Where you're not taking away from the player that like you, there's this pressure to sign, otherwise you can't sign multiple years. But you, you if if a team waits, they get you know you get more rights. Yeah, um, but I just thought, you know obviously these were guys on a television network that need to talk about stuff. 
Yeah. <laughs> clearly very frustrated <laughs> there was nothing to talk about. You know, there's only so many times you can argue Harold Baines's Hall of Fame legitimacy. Right. In like a four day span. So they were trying to figure out a way to make the winter meetings more interesting because there are certain years where it feels like every five minutes you blink at the winter meetings and another deal's been done. And the last couple of years have really been a very, very slow process. And uh, I, I sympathize with them. As 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 you said, you know, we run the site. We have to make sure that things are going up. And, you know, we can have two articles go up in a day in the offseason and be happy with that. They have, you know, during the winter meetings, they have something like, you know, 11 hours of live television to fill. I don't, I don't, <laughs> right. I don't know how you do that, right? But it uh, it seemed a little silly. But then I, I started thinking about it, and it is – it would make it kind of fun, and it would change the way your team approaches – the the off season too. Yeah, you know, there are certain players you don't want to give an extra player an, an extra option year to. That's that's a bad move, you know. So it would, it would make things interesting. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's uh, it would be nice. You know, there are years that I long for, uh, you know, the NHL or NBA style off season, where officially it doesn't start and then on day one like here's all the moves (laughs) (laughs) and it's over you know it's i I like the idea of there just being times to pay attention so even though the winter meetings haven't had a lot of news you know that that's sort of an example of one uh and things happened this week you know on average definitely probably uh, more than your regular off-season week uh yeah but yeah, I like the idea of having a really specific time to tune in and then just kind of go, all right, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of the off season in the sport that I like. Is it, oh, we added a, a role player here or there or whatever, you know, okay, fine. But, you know, the big stuff is just done. I'd rather get it out of the way. So the, the concept of uh, tightening up the off season. I support that. Yeah. Me too. Well, Chris, this is probably our last fully Mets-focused podcast of the year. Yes. Uh, you know, if if there's a big trade or a big signing, we'll probably pop in and do either a, a shorter episode or we'll do a segment on our next show that will be, you know, focus on that. But... But we're going to do a uh, sort of, you know, end of the year spectacular like we've done in the last few years where Chris and I talk about music, which is one of our favorite things that we don't talk about on the show all that often and, and some other things. So look out for that. And uh, if we don't talk to you guys, happy holidays, happy new year. But we'll be back in, the, in a week or two with our uh, year end spectacular. So, uh, yeah, enjoy. Hey everybody, this is Steve Seiper, and this week I'm here to talk about the Rule 5 Draft. So for anyone who's not familiar with it, it is basically a system that lets teams pick certain exposed players that are not on the 40-man roster from other teams in exchange for money. Um, This year, it is $100,000. I'm pretty sure it's been that amount for a couple of years now. So that player that the team picks needs to be added to the Major League Club's 25-man roster, 
and he has to be on the roster for the entire season. And if he's sent down, then he needs to be offered back to his former team or traded to someone else. There's also a minor league portion of the draft, and that one's a little more straightforward. Basically, exposed players are selected, and, and they're just bought for a couple of thousand dollars. There's no roster juggling, there's no roster restrictions, no nothing. Players picked, he's part of the new team, the end. Picking a player that actually works out is kind of like picking a needle in a haystack, but the success rates for teams have actually gone up over the last couple of years, probably because of better scouting and analytic technology and stuff like that. Uh, Brad Keller, he was picked last year by the Royals, and he had a pretty good season. Adobo Herrera, he had a great season for the Phillies a couple of years ago when he was picked. Uh, the Mets picked Sean Gilmartin a few years ago. He was all right. Wasn't spectacular, but he was a solid pitcher for this season. And more often than not, these guys fail, and they're sent back to their original teams or traded elsewhere, but sometimes you do hit the jackpot. And the Mets really haven't been that active in the Rule 5 draft during the Sandy Alderson era. Last year, they drafted Birch Smith, who was a reliever from Tampa Bay, but then they immediately traded him to the Royals. 2015, 2016, they didn't pick anyone at all. 2014, they picked Gil Martin. In 2013, they picked a right-hander named Seth Rosen from the Phillies, but then they immediately traded him to the Dodgers. In 2012, they picked a left-hander, Kyle Lobstein, from Tampa, and then they immediately traded him to the Tigers. And in 2011, they didn't pick anybody at all. So in the first year now of the Brody Van Wagenen administration, uh, they picked a guy named Kyle Dowdy. Uh, he went undrafted out of the Francis Barker School in San Diego. And then he pitched for a bunch of colleges. Uh, first, he enrolled at the University of Hawaii, and he played there. Then he transferred to Orange Coast College, which is a community college in Orange County, California. Then he transferred to the University of Houston, but he was forced to sit his first year there because he had Tommy John surgery. And when he came back in 2015 as a redshirt junior, he was drafted by the Tigers in the 12th round of the 2015 draft. After a solid season for the Houston Cougars. The Tigers were a little conservative when they drafted him. Uh, he was coming off of surgery and they didn't have him pitch for the rest of the 2015 season. He made his professional debut in 2016 for the low A West Michigan Whitecaps, and he was pretty good. He posted a 2.84 ERA in 107 and two-thirds innings, mostly as a starter. He was a bit older, though, when he debuted. He was 23, so you got to keep that in mind. He was promoted to the Lakeland Tigers, their high affiliate in 2017, and again, he was okay. Technically, he was a Florida State All-Star, but again, he was an older dude, so in context, um... A 3.83 ERA in 140 innings, mostly as a starter with good peripherals. You know, it not bad, but, you know, not exactly all-star, in my opinion. He started 2015 with the EBC Wolves, which is the Tigers' AA affiliate. He was promoted to their AAA team, the Toledo Mud Hens, in May, and he wasn't very effective, and he was sent back down to AA for a few weeks. And then he was traded to the Indians. He was packaged with Leonis Martin in exchange for shortstop Willie Castro. And he spent the rest of the year at the Akron Rubber Ducks, which is Cleveland's AA affiliate. And again, he wasn't really that effective. Um, Daddy has been mostly a starter, but his future in the majors is pretty much the bullpen. Uh, he has the fastball for a bullpen. Uh, it sits in the mid to in the low to mid 90s. And he can reach back a little more and hit 95, 96 when he wants. So you figure as a reliever, he gets a little boost. You know, he'll be sitting 95, touching 96, 97. 
and he complements it with a, a slider cutter hybrid, a, a big 12-6 curveball, and a changeup. And out of the bullpen, he'll probably cut out the curveball and the changeup since the curve only kind of flashes average at best and the change is still well below average, making him a fastball slider guy. But that's right up the Mets' alley. Um, notable about him is he has a pretty weird delivery. And, you know, I, I guess I'm going to be rooting for him because I'm all about weird deliveries. I'm not even really sure how to describe what makes it weird. It's just kind of something you have to, like, look at and see. I think what it is is that he takes a really exaggerated step before beginning his delivery. So in addition to Dowdy, they also um, picked a pair of guys in the minor league portion of the draft. Outfielder Braxton Lee from the Marlins and catcher Mitch Gelfie from the Angels. Um, both guys aren't really organizational depth as they're just kind of bodies to be put on the Rumble Ponies or Syracuse Mets roster. Um, I don't really see much potential in either. Lee's a guy that he has a good eye, but that's about it. He's kind of a bat up dependent contact hitter, has no power. He isn't really good on the base pass, even though he does have a decent amount of speed. And Gelfi is kind of your stereotypical defensive catcher that doesn't really offer much at the bat. So all in all, there really isn't much to get excited there for either. Um, Lee feels like a worse version of Champ Stewart, who was released a few weeks ago. And Gelfi is, I don't know, like a no-upside roster filler. So all in all, the Dowdy pick wasn't bad. Um, there were a few guys, though, that I wish the Mets did go with instead. Two pitchers and two position players. Uh, the first pitcher, he's a guy named Tyler J. He's from the Twins. He's had some injury issues over the last couple of years. He had some neck injuries. Well, not really injury, neck issues. And then he had thoracic outlet surgery last year, and that affected him. But the stuff is solid. And he's a left-hander, so, you know, good stuff from the left side is always good. Uh, his fastball sits in the mid-90s, and he has an above-average slider. The flesh is plus, and a fringe-average curveball and changeup. So, again, fastball slider guy right up the Mets' alley. And then from the left-hand, left side, I mean, who needs, who needs Andrew Miller if they got a guy like that? And the next pitcher is a guy named Junior Fernandez, and he's from the Cardinals. He's young. He's only 21. He has a blazing fastball that hits like 98, 99 miles an hour. And he combines it with a changeup that flashes plus and then a developing slider that is fringe average right now, but it'll definitely get better since he's so young. He's got control issues, um, and the cards shut him down early last year because he was feeling some arm soreness. But with the potential that he has, that's a guy that's worth taking a risk on. And then the two position players are guys that are very similar, Michael Geddes and Jacob Gatewood. Uh, they were both drafted in 2014 out of high school, Gatewood at 41 and Geddes at 51. They both have similar strengths that make them attractive and similar flaws that have held them back. Geddes has a nice combination of above-average power, he has speed, and center field defense, but he can't hit. Gatewood has monstrous power, and there's a bonus with him that he could be stashed on the DL for a huge chunk of the season because he's recovering from a torn ACL, but he can't hit. Uh, Geddes, because of the speed, defense, and right-handed power, he's probably the safer of the two, and he actually would be a pretty nice fit on this team as a situational pinch hitter slash pinch runner slash defensive replacement kind of guy, even with his inability to hit, but Mets didn't select him, oh well, it's, you know, not like he was a, a a star right there for the taking that 
was obviously a guy that should have been selected. Um, if he had developed a little, those guys could be impact players. And the Mets don't exactly have a lot of those in the upper minors right now. But developing a little is a lot easier said than done when it comes to the swing and miss issues that both of these guys have. So the Mets have added a hopefully solid bullpen piece. And uh, with the combination of the newly acquired Edwin Diaz and the recently signed and returned Familia, the bullpen is starting to take a decent shape. Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate it. Please go to AmazingAvenue.com where you can get even more analysis and reporting on the winter meetings as well as the Rule 5 selections and all else that is going on in the Mets world. We are trying our best to keep you abreast of the entire offseason and what's coming up and what has happened. So go to AmazingAvenue.com and check it out. You can also follow Amazing Avenue on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Amazing Avenue. You can email us, I think, still at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. I keep saying we're going to have a new email address coming, and I promise we are. It just hasn't happened yet, but it will. I promise it's coming. Uh, you can also send us messages on Twitter or on our Facebook page or uh, in the comments of a podcast post. But you can find uh, the hosts that were on the show tonight on Twitter. I am at Brian Intonap, Chris is at Chris McShane, and Steve is at Steve Saipa. You can also get this show from blogtalkradio.com, from Apple Podcasts, from Stitcher, or your podcatcher of choice. As I mentioned at the end of the segment with Chris, we're going to be doing a special episode next that's sort of an end-of-the-year spectacular, just doing some fun stuff with our friends. And so please come back for that. And until next time, let's go Mets. (laughs) 